Okay, according to my watch, I have 6.30. I'd like to start on time. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, I do thank you so much for the opportunity to gather this evening to hopefully encourage one another, to hopefully learn something. And I do pray that you will give me wisdom, help me to speak clearly, and just that your spirit would guide our proceedings here this evening. Thank you so much for Jesus and the salvation we have through his death and for all of our blessings you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first thing is, with my computer, that's smaller than I would like. So I'll bring another computer next week and see if I can get it bigger. And it's, I think it's still readable, but it's a little smaller than I would like. Now, I think most of you know me, but some of you may not. So quick introduction. I was originally born in New Mexico. I got my degree in mechanical engineering from Texas Tech, and then I got my PhD from Princeton in mechanical and aerospace engineering. And then I taught at a school in Indiana for 30 years. I was in administration for four years and I taught for 26 years. Retired from there, came out here, and this is my fifth year teaching at the Air Force Academy. So that's sort of my professional background. I grew up Catholic and I didn't become a Christian until my freshman year in college, and that's a whole other story and many of you have heard my testimony but so that's sort of my spiritual life I'm married to Rachel I have two boys Wesley and Stephen and Rachel's actually why I went to Princeton because after I got my degree I was accepted at MIT Princeton and Cornell and at MIT and Cornell I was going to study biomedical engineering Princeton didn't have biomedical engineering but it had Rachel <laughs> so it was really I had to struggle between biomedical engineering or Let's call it biology, and so, <laughs> so I went with biology, and so that's why. Okay, so what we are going to be studying for the next number of weeks is based on this book called God Behaving Badly, okay? And there are other references I'll use as well. This was written by David Lamb. He's authored a number of textbooks. He's a professor of Old Testament at Missio Seminary, which... Not a typo, that's actually what it is. <laughs> Worked for InterVarsity for 13 years. He has a doctorate from Oxford. So, bright guy. Um, but that's the primary resource I'll have in this particular class. So, what I want to do is basically discuss the, the subtitle is God of the Old Testament, Angry, Sexist, or Racist. Okay? So, that's his sort of thesis. So, today is just an introduction to what we're going to do, why we're going to do it. And then the remaining weeks are various topics that we'll talk about. And again, I'm primarily using God Behaving Badly, but I have a bunch of other books. Lost World of the Torah, Five Views of Law and Gospel, um, Show Them No Mercy, Lost World of Israelite Conquest. So I'll bring in other references as well to try to supplement this particular book. Now, I am thrilled that this class is following Eddie's class on being... <laughs> Unoffendable. Because <laughs> I feel like this is an opportunity to test. Have you developed this skill or not, based on what I say? Um, I try not to be offendable, but there may be some things I say that are challenging, which is okay. And my, I always have the qualifier. I'm going to teach to the best of my ability what I genuinely believe to be true, but it's possible I am wrong, okay? We can have differences of opinions on some of these things. But I genuinely hope that you're not offended by anything I say today. Okay, let's start off with the discussion. 
what negative impressions of God, especially as revealed in the Old Testament, do you think some people have? Negative impressions of God. Approves of slavery. What's that? Approves of slavery. Approves of slavery. Absolutely. What else? Angry. Angry. Acquired genocide. Genocide. Shows favoritism. Shows favoritism. 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 Like those Israelites. Pick the Israelites as his people? Great. What else? Criticisms of God. Angry. Genocidal. Order to kill every man, woman, and child. It couldn't be God if it allows evil to happen. Okay, allows evil. Which is a theological... I'm not going to discuss the, why do we have evil with an a all-powerful good God. But in my mind, it's related to free will. But other criticisms of God. Yeah. Easily swayed by humans. Easily swayed. What do you mean by that? If, if you can, if I can find twenty just people, would you say? Okay. So actually, that's one view. Also, that he's rigid. Is God rigid? He doesn't change his mind, or is he easily persuaded? And we see both in the Old Testament. How do we resolve the fact that we see both those qualities? And we're going to go back to Scott. I'll let him teach that class on whether he changes his mind. Because clearly, there are lots of examples where he does. Other criticisms. He's egotistical. Egotistical. What do you mean by that? Oh, he just thinks too highly of himself. I mean, he thinks he's God. He is the that you know that we're supposed to bow down to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other thoughts. Sexist. Sexist. Absolutely. Sexist. Could have racist. Homophobic? Any other criticisms like that? All fair? Other criticisms of God? Of yeah. Judgmental. Judgmental? <laughs> okay. And I saw another hand. Jonah thought he was too merciful and compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, Jonah thought that, but I would say peace. People today generally are not thinking of, oh, God is just too merciful. Yeah. Odd rules, and what's the Okay, one? legalistic well, or, and odd rules. Odd rules, for sure. And one more, yeah. He wants, he's jealous. He wants to be first in all of our lives. Jealous. Jealous, jealous. absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so these are the types of things we're going to be discussing in this class. Okay, I'd like to start off by a quote from Richard Dawkins. And who is Richard Dawkins? Atheist. Atheist. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society. It's really hard to become a fellow of the Royal Society. He's a really bright scientist, very esteemed in his field. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. What's that? What is pestilential? Pestilential? 
causing um, like plague, famine, plague. What's beliefs? Suicidal, killing children, killing your children. So, and again, I've also heard him called child abuser. I've heard him called a pedophile. He impregnated a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, Mary. She's probably 11, 12. She was young. And uh, so I've heard all these arguments. So my next question is, what are some Old Testament stories you think he is thinking of that he would say support this view? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, what would that be? Homophobic. Homophobic, probably. Other ones? Joshua. Joshua would be genocidal. The whole Canaanite conquest. Any other ones? Egypt. What's that? Plagues. The plagues, sure. And there's other examples where he had plagues and stuff where people died. And Killing of the firstborn. Killing of the firstborn. Yep. Abraham to offer Isaac. Abraham to offer Isaac. What sort of God would ask you to kill your own son? Uzzah. Uh, what's that? Uzzah. Uzzah, when he touched the ark. Okay, Uzzah. Uzzah, Uzzah. How do you pronounce it? I always said Uzzah. But again, he touched the ark and he was struck dead. That seems a little harsh. We'll talk about that. Um, and again, go with that. Maybe that's control freak, unforgiving control freak. I told you not to do this. You did it. I'm going to kill you. Okay. Racist. When he Racist? Joshua, when they came back and they crossed the Jordan, you had to kill them. That's racist, genocidal, Canaanite conquests are often related to each other. Yeah, sure. Flood. Cleanser. What's flood. that? A flood could be uh, considered unforgiving. Flood could be unforgiving. Yeah, surely not everyone was bad. I mean, that seems to be an overgeneralization. Anything else? Job. Job. Yeah. <laughs> and again, some of these we're not going to discuss, but we're going to try to hit um, common ones that are sort of related to some of these things. Okay? But the point is, he could probably point to Old Testament stories to support all of these. He says, look, this is what God, this is what your God did. See how he is, the bully? And so... Uh, I want to know how do we respond to that? How do we? So, are there biblical passages you find problematic, confusing, or bizarre? How about the one where he said, "I'll offer my the first thing that comes around the corner is his daughter." And killed his daughter. Sure. Of course, that wasn't God. Yeah, but it was an Old Testament story. Sure. Other Old Testament stories you find disturbing. Story of Noah is a biggie for sure. Killing everyone. Yep. What else? Yeah. Lot's daughters having sex with their dad. Lot's daughters having sex with their dad. And again, it's important to remember we have all these horrible stories. You know, have sex with my daughters and send them out to the town who's going to rape them. It's like that's very disturbing. But also, this wasn't God commanding this. This were people doing evil things. So we have to, to make the distinction of that, but sometimes people conflate the two. They say, we have these awful stories, therefore God is awful, whereas God didn't necessarily condone some of the stuff going on. How about marry your rapist? There's an Old Testament law that we'll talk about. Does it actually say that? And if, if that, that doesn't seem very enlightened. Slavery, we already said the Bible never condemns slavery. So therefore, does it condone it? Stoning. 
all the, you know, if you look at all the, they shall die, disobey your parents, they shall die. You know, all these sort of seem much harsher than our modern society. Like Achan and his family, his family did nothing but the earth swallowed them. That's right. And part of the problem with Achan is we are viewing these passages from our modern worldview and perspective, not from an ancient Near East collectivist (laughs) society perspective. And it's really hard to get in that mindset because that's not the way we view the world. But I think it's important to try to understand it from that perspective. Okay, so why am I teaching this class? A number of, first of all, I was asked to teach a class. It's like, okay, sure, <laughs> I should teach a class. What do I want to teach it on? And a couple things prompted this particular class. I've read this book a long time ago. But recently we had a class called Irresistible on Wednesday morning. And I thought it was a really Sunday. good Sunday morning. My wife will take it upon herself (laughs) so you all don't have to worry about correcting me takes that pressure off of you and she will do it willingly and gladly and I appreciate that okay with that that you appreciate that I do she she makes me a better person for sure so again I thought it was a good class but there were elements of the class that gave me the impression they had a low view of the Old Testament. Some parts of it, you were in the class, <laughs> some parts of it seemed like, well, if God, if it looks like God did something bad, don't worry about it, because we are, Jesus is our Lord, so let's just talk about Jesus. Don't, don't worry about that Old Testament stuff. That was my impression sometimes, and I know Andy Stanley has been accused of rejecting the Old Testament. I don't think that's true. I've read some of his writings, and I think he has a pretty balanced approach, but but it came across too much sometimes in my class. And I thought, we should look at some of these hard passages and try to understand them. Um, this is actually a common view. And I have a friend from Terre Haute who was talking to me about this. And it's sort of like, we know Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. So anything in the Old Testament that seems to con- contradict the character of God just wasn't from God. Because we know who God was in Jesus. So if there's something in the Old Testament that seems to contradict that, it must not be true. So here's a quote. One author says that the Canaanite conquest texts are patently non-Christian texts, where the authors were just confused, or they thought God commanded it, but they really didn't because God wouldn't do that because we know Jesus wouldn't do that. So it's really, again, a low view of scripture. They reject a lot of the Old Testament. And like I said, a friend of mine, they said, everything in the Old Testament, we need to interpret through the lens of Jesus. And the problem is it's our impression of what Jesus is not necessarily who Jesus actually was. So again, I think that is another reason I think understanding some of these Old Testament passages is worthwhile. And then, I don't know if you've heard of Red Letter Christians. Red, red Letter Christian movement, what is it? Red Letter, yeah, so we, you know, all the writings of the apostles and stuff, those really aren't binding to us. We are only bound by what Jesus says. Jesus is our Lord, and so the Red Letters are what guide our life. And all the other stuff doesn't matter. And to me, that's even worse than throwing out the Old Testament. You're throwing out a bunch of the New Testament as well, often to justify your own, what you want to do, in my opinion. So, like I said, I want us to have a high view of Scripture and look at the some of these challenging Old Testament passages. Okay, so I want us to know how do we respond to people who cherry-pick Scriptures to challenge Christianity? Or defame God? How do we actually respond to that in an intelligent way? And we can't just ignore 
them in my opinion. We can't just ignore problematic passages. We just pretend they don't exist. I don't think that's a very mature, intellectually honest way of looking at the scriptures. And so and I also think we don't want unsatisfactory answers to hard passages. Anyone have an example of what they think an unsatisfactory answer would be? When we just <laughs> For those of you who can read quickly, <laughs> what was it? God is God. He can do whatever he wants, which is a true statement. God is God. We are not. He can do whatever he wants. But I would contend for someone who's not a believer, that's not a very satisfying answer. And I think we can come up with more satisfying answers. Any other unsatisfactory answer? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. We just can't know. So let's not bother. <laughs> um, and again, this is sort of related to the previous slide. I know the Bible says that, but there's no way God would do that. We sort of say, we sort of discount it or try to say, well, it really didn't happen that way. Um, and there are some Christians that have a negative view of the Old Testament. They ignore it or discount it. And I think sometimes we may not read the Old Testament. It's like, I like the New Testament, but the Old Testament is harder to read. I don't know if I get much out of it, so I'm just going to stick with the New Testament. And eventually that can lead to, I'm just going to throw it out. I don't, it doesn't have any impact on my life. And that I don't think is correct. Especially if you recall Alan's class where he talked about our scriptures are Jewish. And he talked about all the Old Testament references in the New Testament. Okay, so, but this concept of throwing out the Old Testament is not a new concept. If you go back to second century, there's this guy named Marcion, and he was a heretic, and he was excommunicated in 144. He was one of the very earliest, very, I mean, he had a huge following. Marcion did. And this is a picture, I don't know when this was made, but that's supposed to be Marcion, that's supposed to be John. And so what he believed was that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. He thought there was an angry God, and then there was a loving God. They were not the same God. That was Marcion's view. So he believed that God of the Old Testament was inconsistent, changed his mind, didn't seem to know what he wanted to do, wrathful, genocidal, which are the same arguments we hear today. This was, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,800 years ago, whether he's making the same arguments. So he basically rejected the Old Testament and said it's irrelevant to us as Christians. And so that's who he was. So the point is, this sort of view has been around a very, very long time with Marcion. Now, and sometimes you'll hear, like, Andy Stanley's a Marcionite. It's like, again, I don't think he is, but that's what they're saying when you hear that sort of terminology. Now, I do want to give him one kudos, sort of. He was the first person to codify the Christian canon. What is the canon? The books of the Bible that we consider inspired by God. Okay, He was the first person to put together a list. And his list had 11 books, a shorter version of Luke, and 10 of Pauline, Paul's epistles. That was here his canon, but he rejected the entire Old Testament. He rejected all the other letters and all the other Gospels. But why was this important? Because suddenly, church fathers are saying, you know, we should really decide and talk about which of these things we're going to consider authoritative. You know, this is very early on, early 100s. So I think this prompted the church to develop standards for how do we accept. And there were also, you know, the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Barnabas. And there's all these other writings coming up. So the church took it upon itself to say, how do we decide which ones are from the apostles, which ones are inspired by God? And it wasn't an arbitrary list. They had criteria that, you know, it had to be traced to an apostle. It had to be used by a major church. It had, so there were lots of 
reasons, and you know, we could do a whole class on the canon. But Marcion was the first person to try to come up with a list, basically. Okay, so let's look at how Jesus and the apostles viewed the Old Testament, because I think that should impact how we view the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, the New Testament contains 283 quotes, if my reference is correct, but there are almost a thousand allusions to it. So not direct quotes, but allusions to it in some way. And if you again, if you went to Alan's class, he often mentioned, you know, Son of Man, that is referring to Daniel. And when you see this, this is referring to this story. So there's a lot of allusions. These are not all almost a thousand. How do I know that? Because Rachel added them up for me. So, <laughs> no, that's only 879, that's whatever it is. This was not intended to be a comprehensive list. It's intended to be, you know, a lot of allusions and references, okay? So Matthew 96, Luke 115, Gospel of John, 295 references or allusions to the Old Testament. So clearly, they held it in very high regard, and they refer to it all the time. It's just what Christianity is built on. And when Paul said all scripture is God-breathed, he was talking about the Old Testament. So we need to remember he was talking about the Old Testament. Okay, so let's look at how Jesus did use the Old Testament, just a couple of ways. So when he was tempted in the desert, he quoted from Deuteronomy. What were his three quotes? Anyone know? Man does not live by bread alone, essentially. No, you shall worship the God alone. That was number three. What was the other one? Do not test or tempt God. Do not test your God. But again, so he was tempted and he responded with Old Testament scripture. On the cross, he quoted from Psalm 22. What's that quote? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which sort of, as Alan mentioned, when you had the first verse, it really was referring to the whole psalm. And people would have known what the rest of that psalm said. Because if you read the whole thing, it's, wow, this is talking about Jesus on the cross. How about... When asked which command was greatest, he quoted from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And what are those two? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Uh, when he asked the Christ, he responded, I am, which comes directly from Exodus. And he frequently mentioned the law of the prophets, the Psalms. This is not an extensive list, but all the time he mentions the law and the prophets. So again, Jesus used the Old Testament a lot. He also used images from the Old Testament to describe himself or to describe God. So again, allusions to the Old Testament again. So Isaiah 5.2. Could someone read this for me? Give me a hand. And, and I'm asking you to do this because I think I mentioned to you a while ago. I had a stroke, and sometimes I have a hard time reading. I get, can get confused. So, Anita. He dug it up and cleared it out of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but he yielded only bad fruit. Okay, then in Matthew, continue with me if you would. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug in a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. <coughs> then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And the landowner is God, but clearly this is a reference to Isaiah. And again, it's not a direct quote, but it's clearly an allusion. To Isaiah. How about bridegroom? Rachel, could you read these two for me? <laughs> for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your son marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Okay, so God led to a bridegroom there. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Okay, so Jesus is the bridegroom, but again, that reference is the bridegroom. Shepherd, volunteer. Thank you, Kat. Ezekiel 34, 11 to 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, so talking about God. <coughs> John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So God is a shepherd. We see that image of God in the Old Testament. We see that image of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, King, volunteer. Anyone? Thank you. Leave it short. <laughs> for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, so God is often described as a king in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Okay, so my next, another discussion question. In what ways can a distorted view of God cause spiritual problems, do you think? And actually, for this one, I want... Some people hate this, and if you do... What's the, the main thing we learned? Unoffendable. Don't be offended. That's right. Get over it. That's a terrible thing to say. You're probably offended again. So, give you lots of practice. So, what I want you to do is talk to the people around you. Real quickly, a couple minutes. In what ways do you think a distorted view of God can cause spiritual problems? So, if you don't know the people next to you, introduce yourself. And talk to each other for a few minutes. Okay, let's come back together. Hopefully that wasn't hard or painful. So... In what ways can the distorted view of God cause spiritual problems? Anyway, well, we have a view of God as a vindictive, mean person, then it's going to affect the way that's going to affect our view of how we behave. I mean, like I mean, growing up personally, I've always I pictured God as this cosmic policeman waiting for me to sin so he could zap me and then so if you really, view him as super judgmental then maybe i'm always scared he's going to zap me right or if you view him as angry and mean it's like maybe i want nothing to do with it right just don't other ones how can a distorted view of god cause spiritual problems well just like we talked about as far as Achan's and his whole family gets wiped out yep but then when you come into the new testament you know, it's like, okay, Ananias, Sapphira, it's okay, yeah, life is good. And then it's like, but then other people are forgiven, and they have all these sins. So it's like, well, wait a minute, you say stone them, and then you don't stone them. It's like, well, then what am I supposed to believe? Okay, okay. So it can be lead to some confusion. Yes. Other thoughts? Why a distorted view of God? What if you view God as love? That's it. Because God is love. I can do anything I want. He just loves me. He loves me. No, everyone is going to heaven, right? Yeah. Because God loves everyone. Because and God is all-powerful. So therefore, everyone has to go to heaven because God can make happen what he wants to happen. We only use our opinion. What's that? We only use our opinion of what God is of us. And us. that's the problem. If we only have what we want, we make God in our own image. Or we only pick the qualities of God that we really like. It's like, yeah, I like God being loving. I don't like God being just or wrathful. I don't like those. I'm going to throw those out. But it can lead a distorted view, right? If I view God as loving, I can do whatever I want because God will always love me no matter what I do. We're all children of God. Is that true? 
No. I would say no. We're all created in the image of God, but in the New Testament, being a child of God is something that we, when we become a Christian, we become a child of God. It's a very special relationship. It's not that just anyone is a child of God. It's just not biblically what, I think we're all created by God, we're all loved by God, we're not all children of God. So again, that can lead to distortions. A couple ideas I had here. Far-wrench gods will directly affect how we either pursue or avoid God. If we view him as all-powerful and loving and kind, we want to be with him. We want to know him more. We view him as angry and bitter and resentful and a bully. Why would I want to pursue a god like that? If we believe of the god that is harsh, unfair, and cruel, sorry about that, um, you, again, you probably don't want to have anything to do with it. Here's another one. If God will affect what we think God's followers should be like. So if God is angry, sexist, and racist, it would follow that Christians would be angry, sexist, and racist. And unfortunately, I think sometimes that is the perception people have of Christians. Well, you're just angry, sexist, racist, you hate people. We know God hates people, and you hate people as well. So it can affect Christians can affect the way people view God, but God can also affect the way people view, people's view of God can affect the way they view Christians. So, just a quick note, compared to other ancient Near East, that's what A-N-E means, ancient Near East literature, the Old Testament is really shockingly progressive. Now, by modern standards, we say this is not a progressive document, but it really was amazingly progressive in its portrayal of divine love, acceptance of foreigners, <coughs> affirmation of women, Men and women being created in the image of God. There is no other ancient Near East culture where men and women were created in the image of God. That was a unique thing. Okay, so let's start off with some principles of biblical interpretation. Now, how many of you were in my Genesis class? <clears throat> Couple people. Excellent. So I just made a new Teams page, and now they're saying, "Oh, we like it." So I apologize for everything coming yeah, out. What's that? Do you have to go to work? No. So this sort of background information is coming from my Genesis class. So if you weren't in it, it's new. If you weren't in it, it'll just be with you. Okay, so some basic principles of biblical interpretation, in my opinion, is biblical authority is tied to the author's intent. In other words, we need to try to understand what the author was trying to convey. For example, the authors were never trying to convey science because they didn't know what science was. The authors weren't trying to convey some modern concept of democracy. They didn't know what democracy was. So we have to try to understand what they were trying to convey. And we don't need to believe everything that they believed because they had a very observational view of the world. They didn't know the earth went around the sun. They didn't know the earth moved. The earth was fixed, which is the way it feels like to me. I'll be honest with you. It does not feel like the earth is moving right now. Okay, so they had a very observational view of the world, which is perfectly fine. So when the Bible says, you know, the earth is on its foundation, it cannot be moved, that's not making a statement that the sun is going around the earth and the earth is fixed like a geocentric view. It's merely saying, from my perspective, that's my observational, okay, saying we have this strong foundation on the earth. It's not making a scientific statement. So that's important to remember. And we don't have to view the way that they view the world. They, didn't, they believed there was a solid sky. We talk about the firmament. That's a solid thing which held the waters above. Why would they think there's water above? Because it rains. 
it, right, how did the water get up there? It has to be up there. Why isn't it coming down now? Something's holding it up there. Okay, that's a very observation. You know, they weren't scientists. They didn't know about the water cycle. They didn't know about the atmosphere. They didn't know about the Earth was a planet. It was observational, which is perfectly fine. Um, they generally had an Eastern mindset, not a Western mindset. We have a very Western logical mindset. Eastern has a different way of viewing the world. Um, they tend to be a collectivist society. We tend to be individualistic. That goes back to the story of, what's his name? Aiken and his sin. We th why did they kill the whole thing? It was a collectivist society. They were all of a grouping, and that was the way they viewed people. Um, so setting aside culturally bound ideas doesn't jeopardize the authority of scripture or the meaning of scripture, but we have to recognize it is written in a culture a long time ago different than ours. That's sort of the one of the main takeaways. Okay. It's also biblical interpretation is hard. So when we look at some of these Old Testament passages, I'm going to be pointing out, you know, we have this word, but what does that word actually mean in the ancient Near East? Because we may be bringing in some baggage associated with it. So we need to understand what do the original words mean at the time they were written, not what does the English translation mean, okay? Because I have heard people, for example, New Testament, where it says, um, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The word for is like, what's the, anyone know what the Greek word is? Ice. And I heard Chuck Swindoll talk about that. And he's like, oh, it just means like if I'm going to the store for bread, it's I'm going to the store, or I, uh, no, I'm going to jail for the crimes. Why am I going to jail? Because I committed these crimes. Why are we baptized? Because we're already forgiven. For the forgiveness of sins means we're already forgiven. That's the English definition of the word for forgiveness. If you look at the Greek word, it means pointy to. I'm going to the store for bread. Not because I already have bread, in order to get bread. So that's the problem with trying to use the English definition, English word without looking at the actual Hebrew or Greek word. So what do the words mean in context? So first of all, there is no dictionary. We can't find an old Hebrew dictionary, Hebrew to English. That would be great, but that isn't, doesn't exist, okay? And then we have to understand words have different meanings depending on their context, right? And so I once had a friend, he's still a friend, but he would say, I don't need commentaries, I don't read commentaries, I don't, because I have my Greek interlinearity Bible and I have my Hebrew dictionary and I can just translate it myself. It's like, you just, you can see the Greek word and you can see a possible meanings and you pick the one you like instead of understand it's really hard to trans these experts i think we should be very grateful to the people who bring this knowledge of the culture writing and give us to the best of their ability but there's always an interpretive aspect when you are reading a translation so the english word i like is contronym anyone know what a contronym is for those of you who know me i like words so we know a synonym right two words that have the same meaning. We know an antonym, two words that have opposite meanings, and a contronym, one word which has meanings that are opposite to each other. So a single word with me So what's an example other than Rachel? There's a lot. Do you think Rachel's a contronym? No. Uh, like sanction is one. So I could say, we this track meet is sanctioned by the NCAA or by the Olympic Committee to allow you to... Oh, so it's sanctioned, what does that mean? 
We approve of it. This is an official event. We are sanctioning, sanctioning North Korea. No, we don't approve what you're doing. We're sanctioning you. Uh, another example, bolt. I bolt the door to keep the horse in so the horse doesn't bolt, which is to run free. So it's like to hold in, to run free. What was the other one I had on? Huh? You like cleave. What does cleave mean? Cling to or to. To hold together, cleave to your spouse when you get married, but don't cleave their head, <laughs> which means to separate from their body. Okay, so that would be one. There was another one. Uh, oh, apology. This afternoon, I had to give my class an apology because I gave them all Fs. I didn't. But what would that mean? Apology, we kind of, well, that means to say I'm sorry, right? It could also, I gave them apology means a defense. Like apologetics is defense. So I gave them an apology. You're all idiots and you failed because you didn't do the homework. Okay, you should have done well on this. So I'm telling you why, I'm giving a defense of why I gave you all Fs. Or I could apologize. The test was unreasonable, which they never are. But, so you can see how the same word can have multiple meanings. And how do you decide which one of those is correct. You have to understand the context. You have to understand how the words fit sleep. How do we use, understand the meaning of Hebrew words? Well, it's from the context. Where else is it used? How else is it used? How does this author use it? And it's a challenging thing because sometimes the word is only appearing in a couple places. And you can't necessarily go to like, okay, the classical Greek use of this word is not necessarily the same as the New Testament use of this word. So it's just a challenge. Okay. What do the words mean in the culture in which it was written? Because again, the culture was collectivistic and the culture was Eastern. So what does this word mean in that culture? And what is the genre of the writing? What do I mean by that? Poetry, wisdom literature, prophetic, apocryphal, history. So there's lots of, and depending on the genre, it strongly influences the meaning of what you're looking at. Okay, so let's look at some English examples, and I want you to tell me what these things mean. Have a heart. Be compassionate. Be, compassionate, be sympathetic. Someone from a different culture, that may be completely meaningless. A thousand years from now, maybe they 3D print hearts, and I'm going, uh, could you give me a heart, please? I would like a updated version <laughs> and I'll take it down to the next door to the heart implant people. So again that over thousands of years words change and that we all know what that means right now but that doesn't mean another culture understands that or that doesn't mean 300 years ago that's what have a heart meant. He's a nice person. What's it mean? He's pleasant, he's kind. What was the original meaning of that? Stupid, foolish, ignorant. He's nice. He's stupid. Mm -hmm. And it gradually became to be more like polite and then sometimes kind. So, But it's evolved over the years. If you read a document from a long time ago and said something's nice, that does not mean what we think it means. Okay? Uh, I live on the first floor. It's different here. So if I told you, okay, a friend says, you know, Come to dinner. We'd love to have you. Come in the main thing. Come in the main doors, and I'm on the first floor, second door on the right. 
And I go in and I walk to the second door on the right, and that's not my friend. <laughs> Why? Because in Europe, ground floor, first floor. First floor is the second floor. If you didn't know that, you would go in the wrong place. You would interpret literature differently if something's talking about the first floor based on our perception, right? Blood is thicker than water. Now, there's some debate on this one, but what does we typically think this means? Blood is thicker than water. Relatives are critical. More important. Actually, the def definition I saw was blood is like the bond of military people in arms. Blood is thick. Water is like he's born of the water and the spirit. Water was human birth. So the water was referring to family. Blood was referring to your brotherhood of arms family and saying that is more important than your physical family. It's like that is completely different. Now, I've read people that agree and disagree with that. So I don't know which, but I think it makes sense. But I'm not sure. I'm not going to put my reputation on that. Stop throwing shade. What's that mean? Stop throwing insults. Stop throwing insults. I'd never heard that till ten years ago. My sons used it in a sentence. It's like I never. It's actually used in the '80s for the first time. We're talking about throwing shade. Hundred years ago, that wouldn't mean anything at all. But it's like insult, you know, criticizing someone. Uh, so and so is gay. Happy. <laughs> it doesn't mean happy nowadays. <laughs> if you are told someone is gay, that means they are same-sex attraction, they're homosexual. It doesn't mean they're a happy person. The meaning has changed. Okay. So if we read Shakespeare was gay, people say, oh, look, he was homosexual. It's like, no, 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 no. That word was different and used in a different context. So you have to understand the culture at the time it was written. And what's the problem with the Bible? It's thousands of years old. It's really old, so it's hard to get to that. Okay, another one. He made love to me. Ginger Rogers said this in Top Hat. The Fred Astaire, 1935. It doesn't mean they had sex. It was sort of like flirtatious. It was a it was a in it more innocent type thing. See, it wasn't until 50s, 60s where made love to me was universally known as having sex to, to make love. But prior to that, it was not. So when you read that, you would misinterpret that depending on our current understanding of that. Silly art thou, holy Virgin Mary. And that means blessed. Silly meant blessed. He was a good dog. If you're at my house, it means my chihuahuas are the greatest dogs ever. <laughs> or if you're on a ranch in Australia, their good dog means they can take care of the sheep. If you're in Singapore or Vietnam, it's like, that dog. <laughs> that was a good dog. But again, it depends where you are in terms and the context and how to interpret that. Uh, young girls of the diocese. This is Chaucer, probably Canterbury Tales. Mm -hmm. Probably not good. That's boys and girls. That's say. children. Mm -hmm. Boys was not used till the 15th, 14th or 15th century. So girls was used for children. And so we read that, and the word for boys is actually a, a French word that came over to the English language. So again, you look at these things and this is, you know, this is what, 700 years ago? So it's a long time ago, but it's not 2,000 years ago. So the point is, it's hard. <laughs> and, that's all. and the problem sometimes is, I can give the impression it's impossible. Holy cow. 
how do we understand anything? But we, that's why we have people study. That's why we have experts. That's why we use different translations. That's why we try to understand things to the best of our ability. Okay, so another discussion part. Got some time here. What comes to mind when you read these English words? Law. Anything law related that comes to mind for you? Rules. Rules. What else? Code. What else? Police. Absolutely. You think police. That's the law. What else? Politicians. You think of the legislature. You think of the process. Well, you have the Senate and the House, and they have laws, and they vote, and then, you know, the lobbyists write the bills, or whatever you think of in terms of law, and then it's voted on, and then the president vetoes it, or he approves. That's law. That's legislation, but law. What else? Judge and jury. Judge and jury. Jury of our peers. That's the law. Okay? Laws are applicable to everyone. It's like, you're not above the law. Like, if, if I can't speed, you can't speed. This is the law. This is all something that we have, have to follow. Okay? But the word law is never in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's called Torah. And when the Septuagint was written, that word Torah was translated into the Greek word law. But this really just means teaching instruction. It doesn't mean law like we think of law. There was no concept of legislation or law, like the modern concept of legislation or law at the time of Moses, which is 13 years before, 1300 years before Jesus. So we have to be very careful when we think of the law, because it's actually the Torah. So what does the Torah actually mean? How about the words create or make? What comes to mind? English word create or make? Build. Build? Sure. Build. What else? Form. Form, like if I have pottery, you know, I'm going to make a cup. So I take my dust and I fire it. Okay, I made my cup and it's beautiful. Design. Design. Create, make. I've always thought of create is like only God can create because he can make something from nothing. Oh. But we can make because we have something to make it from. And again, vernacular, we use them interchangeably. You know, I created this painting, I made this painting, I created this. But you're right, we tend to think of physical creation. Whereas the words are actually bara and esa. And so we need to not know what these English words mean, but what do these Hebrew words mean in the context they were written? And in my Genesis class, I talked about the difference between creating a house how do I create a house? I lay the foundation, I put up the walls, I put in electricity and the plumb. Not me, I don't have any of these skills. But someone else does this and then put up the drywall and we have a house. I've created a house. Wasn't there, now it is. So that's a type of creation we tend to think of. In the ancient Near East, I think they were more likely to think of creating a home. How do I create a home? Get married, get married. I, and I move into the house. I come into the house, but how do I make this house our home? I, use, I say, okay, this is my son's bedroom. This is my daughter's bedroom. Once that has been defined, they are not allowed to go into each other's bedroom. This is really something that physically happened here, right? I made, and this is the library. This is the kitchen. So we're assigning functions to the house to make it a place where I live as a home. Is that creation? 
I would say yes, that is a real creation of making a home. It's not a physical creation. And so again, I'm not going to reteach my Genesis class, but it was about that theme that Genesis 1, I think, is the story of the home, not the story of the house. How about totally destroy? What do we think of that? What's that? Demolish, Demolish completely? Yeah, what else? Annihilate. Nuclear. <laughs> totally destroyed, right? Anything else? Well, in today's headlines, it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> With today's headlines? Oh, no, what he said just totally destroyed her. Well, right. So again, we can use it, but I'm thinking more of the not the way we use it in an exaggeration where it's sort of meaningless. I was totally destroyed when Rachel told me she thinks I should cut my hair. It's like, <laughs> just crushed me. It's totally destroyed. That's, you know, hurt my feelings. She was being unreasonable. I mean, there's a lot of things it could be, but it was, <laughs> wasn't totally destroyed. You realize I always have interesting conversations on the way home from church. <laughs> okay, but the Hebrew word is harem. So the question is, what does harem actually mean? <clears throat> and we will talk about that in one of the classes. Okay, so again, like my Genesis class, I'm going to try to... Did I do something wrong? No. <laughs> Left us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, I'll give you a hint. Okay. Harem is usually destroying, like, the culture of something. Not, like, necessarily killing every man, woman, child, but destroying their culture, knocking down their religious symbols knocking down this, not marrying them. That tends to be more of the definition of totally destroyed. It's more of a cultural identity of the person as opposed to their lives. Okay, so how do you think people that living... Oh, disclaimer, I already mentioned this at the very beginning. I will try to share what I think is true and I've studied, but I could be wrong. And if you disagree with me, Mike and I disagree on things, we're still friends. We'll ask That's Rachel. And, and Rachel will have the right answer, but... Um, so again, I think we can be Christians and study and try to understand things to the best of our ability and come to different conclusions. As long as we're trying to all be intellectually honest, that should not affect our relationship with one another. We have relationships with one another because of our united... We're saved by the blood of Jesus. He is our Lord and Savior. That is why we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Not that we all have exactly the same belief on every topic. Okay, so how do you think people living 3,000 years ago viewed the world differently than we do? Hard question, but how do you think? Much smaller. Much smaller? Yeah, they did not know this was a huge planet here. It was a they day wouldn't have known all the different ways of thinking. How so? What do you mean? Well, I, I mean, you're going to think, well, we can fall in it too, but we are exposed to so many different people with so many different thoughts. They would not have done They lived they in probably their, their town their whole life. Yeah. Maybe they went to Jerusalem, maybe they went to some other place, but it was a really small geographical area dealing with people pretty much just like them. So they would have had a very limited diversity of thought. What else? How would they view the world differently? And I've already mentioned some. They didn't know... Earth was a planet. They didn't know it went around the sun. They didn't know the sun was a star. What else? Patriarchal. Gen yes. Generally patriarchal. Father was the head of the household. Yes. Absolutely. What else? Polytheistic. Polytheistic at that society in general. Yes, polytheistic. The Israelites were an exemption in terms of monotheism. But yes, in general, the culture was polytheistic. What else? Dangerous world. 
dangerous? I don't know. I have not heard that. I tend to think of today's world as pretty dangerous. Um, it was. There was certainly no safety nets. There was no government programs to help people who are poor. You helped your neighbor, or they didn't get help. You're on the street. You're begging. Absolutely. Um, your most of your life was getting food, shelter, and clothing. That's what life was about. It wasn't not a lot of leisure. Like I'm gonna read a book. Yeah. Did they have been scared when they saw um, uh, comets? Sure, they were. I wouldn't say they're superstitious, but they were. And I'll mention this. We tend to view of, of in terms of natural world and supernatural, right? So. If we see someone rise from the dead, we say that's supernatural. It is But if something, if the ball drops to the ground, that's just Newton's gravity. That's not supernatural. They view the world, everything. God did everything. If the plants grew, God's made it grow. If it rained, God's made it rain. If there's a sun, there's a God of the sun. So everything was controlled by God. So they wouldn't have had this dichotomy of, of uh, supernatural and natural, because everything is done by God. Which is not the way we view the world. We tend to view of it as mechanistic, governed by laws. Yes. But that that was true up until maybe two, three hundred years ago. That's right. That's right. Changed. I mean, Aristotle's view of the of the world lasted for two thousand years until Newton came along, and it was very, like we talked about, observational. You know, big objects small drop faster than heavier objects drop faster than light objects, and that's like if I drop a bowling ball and a feather, that's true, but it doesn't doesn't really understand the principles. Okay, so my so there were a lot of differences, and I'll share some more on the next slide. But one point is the ancient Near East. You know there were differences. We talked about polytheism, monotheism, right? There were differences between Babylon and Israel, but in general they would have viewed the world much more similarly to each other than we view the world and them. So we can actually learn a lot by looking at Babylonian creation stories. We can learn a lot by looking at Babylonian laws or Mesopotamian laws because they lived in the same sort of cultural river, if you will. Uh, so here are some things that would be completely foreign to the ancient Near East. Capitalism wasn't a thing. Democracy, no, we don't vote for our leaders. That's not the way it works. Our legal system, judges, attorneys, they may have had judges, but it's not like our legal system at all. Books, not a thing. It was primarily an oral culture, not a written culture. That didn't mean they didn't have scrolls. They didn't have people who could write. But that was not the common person. The common person was not literate, and that was not an important thing. Oral cultures, and in my previous class, we talked about the difference between written cultures and oral cultures. And oral cultures are really good at conveying information over long periods of time. But they're also not concerned about some things. Like the Gospels, we read the temptations of Jesus are different in different Gospels. And so a critic will say, well, clearly there's contradictions, right? Which temptation happened first? They conflict with each other. The Bible's clearly not inspired by the Word of God. It's not God spoken because there are differences. There are contradictions. And it brings in a, a modern view of what the writing is rather than recognizing with normal culture, that didn't matter. The order didn't matter. Sometimes the characters didn't matter. The order of events didn't matter. Uh, science, no concept of science. That's a modern invention. 
Sun's larger than the Earth, rugged individualism, not a concept, again, a collectivist society. Supernatural versus natural, our educational system is not what they had. And this is one of the summary statements from an author I like named John Walton, which was, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. So trying to understand, it was written to people in the ancient Near East who viewed the world a particular way. It was written for us. But we have to recognize it was written in a different culture, and so we need to try to understand what it meant in that culture, and therefore, how is it applicable to us? Okay, so in this class, I've got three minutes. We'll be looking at biblical texts. We'll look at different genres. So we'll look at wisdom literature. We'll look at some poetry. But we'll try to get a, a good view, like, is God angry, from looking at different types of genres of literature. Try to understand passages in the context and the culture they were written in the historical context. Um, we'll see how Old Testament qualities of God we also see in Jesus. There's really not a conflict between Jesus and God as he's revealed in the Old Testament. And so these are the chapters in the book. Angry versus loving, legalistic versus gracious, rigid versus flexible. I'll let Scott teach that one. Racist versus hospitable, violent versus peaceful. Rachel didn't like this one, sexist versus affirming. Because affirming has started to take a new meaning, right? What does affirming mean now? To agree with. You know, if you're affirming, you have to accept my lifestyle. You have to accept I'm transgender. That's affirming. Whereas we are talking about how God viewed women in the Old Testament primarily. And that is, again, I'm using the... The, uh, word that's the words in the book. Another word that's changed fairly recently. Okay, so we have two minutes for questions, comments. And before, my last thing is if you want a copy of these slides, because I know I go through fast and I'm not an expert in this stuff, so that slides tend to have a lot of information. So I think they're probably pretty good handouts. So if you want my slides, give me your email address and I will send you my slide. I'll send you these slides, probably a PDF. And I'll also send you next week's slides before class. So if you want to bring them to class and take notes or whatever, or find errors, it's always Any questions, comments? Sounds very interesting. I hope so. <laughs> and again, what's the main takeaway? Don't get offended. <laughs> but and also, again, trying to help us be mature Christians that can respond to people that have views of God and the Bible that aren't necessarily valid. I think we want to be able to address those in, a, in an honest, fair, reasonable way. Okay? Well, great. Thanks for everyone coming. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.